0: Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage where I talk with author Patricia O'Sullivan about women criminals here. In her latest book, Women, Crime and the Courts, Hong Kong 1841 to 1941, published by Blacksmith Books. Patricia looks at crimes such as murder, kidnapping women to traffic as prostitutes, cutting down trees and selling valuable wood, but how the courts here also dealt with the women. There's very little social history about women from that era written in Hong Kong in English. So, for this Hong Kong heritage, we not only look at some of those cases, but the lot for working-class women, both Chinese and European, which often was pretty dire. Women, often dependent on men for their survival, led perilous lives. Girls would sometimes be sold, and midwifery was so unqualified and basic that traditional methods would often lead to a baby's death. When you first thought about doing this book, was it that you were finding out about women and crime, or was it a case of, were you expecting them to be a bit more saucy or naughty, or was it, you know, because what I found with your book is that it's actually quite devastating in some ways. You know, it's about women caught up in poverty and desperation and neglect, or just really uh, running out of choices some of the time. Um, So, you know, it wasn't quite pirates and corsets.
1: <laughs> no, and I suppose, in a sense, because what I had written previously had been about the European women in Hong Kong, and I knew about one or two, like Edith Carew, who murdered her, well, as alleged to have murdered her husband up in Japan, and one or two other high profile European cases. I was expecting to to find more hardened criminals I think. I was expecting to see women going wrong as the Victorians in Britain would have said. But no, as you say, it is so much of it. I mean just it just went on about being about poverty, being about lack of education, that all of these things come out of. Not all, all of them of course. I mean, you know, I've I've got my lineup of European women who are obviously there trying to make a life for themselves and life getting pretty pretty rough and then, you know, taking to the grog and making making a, a nuisance of themselves to everybody. Some of this are much more devious and callous people are there as well but they are
0: not the norm yeah with some of the women I mean definitely I felt very sorry for the circumstances that they found themselves in but uh, as you say there's a, there's always also the other people who are not exactly evil that's the wrong word but, but just um, are perhaps uh, more keen to take advantage so not every murder is an accident or a moment of passion some are premeditated but in terms of the the women themselves so you're looking very much at Working class women, both in the case of European women who've come uh, often as army or military wives, could be naval wives um, who would go to sea with their husbands for three years at a time or otherwise who are married to police and and come to Hong Kong. And with the Chinese, that can also be even down to young girls who are sold uh, or who are sold into prostitution, but also, you know, women of all ages. But as you say, it's very much the it's not the upper classes at all, is it? No, it isn't one or two more
1: affluent women, both with Chinese and Western, but they're still living in the town they're not they're not the women on the peak and of course, I mean the very affluent chinese were were very sort of hedged round, so the very affluent Chinese in the first half of this period that I'm looking at would not really be out and about at all,
0: so we don't hear of them when you were looking for these cases. Um, What we, you know, is it it sort of going back over the local newspapers? You're also looking at magistrate court accounts? Yes, a lot of time
1: I spent sort of literally trawling page after page, you know, issue after issue of Hong Kong Telegraph, the Daily Press, the China Mail, looking at the police intelligence reports Trying to spot a woman there, because that is where, obviously, even more serious crimes that do eventually get to the Supreme Court, they all start off in the magistrate's court, and trying to find instances of women. And and sometimes you could go for weeks on end. Uh, without finding a single woman appearing in the magistrate.
0: With the women in court, I mean, you cover a whole century, so you go from 1841 to 1941. So if we go right back to the middle of the 19th century, how are women portrayed who are in court? How are they treated?
1: They're rare, to say the least. But, I mean, if you go back to the, some, some of the earliest little cases I've found, which were of tree cutting, women just chopping down wood, firewood, and they're probably going to sell it and they're treated exactly the same as um, male prisoners would be, male male defendants would be rather, and given fines, given prison sentences. There's little difference there. I mean, there's one interesting case where, The constable and inspector of concerns really clearly identify that the woman who owns the hut where all of this wood is being stored is the ringleader, and she's got about five or six men working for her, bringing in, cutting down a newly sprouted plantation out in somewhere at West Point, I think it is. So she is heavily fined. It's an occasion when there's a woman who actually can afford to pay a fine as well, which is not always the case.
0: You see these monetary fines, but you also see men particularly facing hard labour. But women are also put in the stocks publicly, aren't they?
1: I've only got the one example of that. I've found men being put in the stocks until the 1920s, but it's the only, the only case of that is Leong Kwok Shi. She and her husband were the very first people to appear at the new Supreme Court in 1844. It was the very first case heard there, and they had been accused of abducting two young girls and kidnapping them and taking them up to Canton and with the intention of selling them into prostitution. The brother of one of the girls paid a ransom and was actually able to alert the Hong Kong police. So when the whole party came back to Hong Kong, the Leongs were arrested he was given a sentence with hard labour and she was given the same length of sentence but because I'm I'm sure at that point there was really I mean there wasn't really a woman's prison they had to be kept in a back room at the magistrate's house they couldn't have thought of what to give her for hard labour so the men had to go out and build the roads so you know it really was hard labour um so she was put in the stocks but she is Literally the only one I've found. There may well be more, but I haven't haven't come across
0: them. But that was meant as a public humiliation?
1: Yes, yeah. Normally the, the stocks were erected at the place where the crime had been committed, so I'm not quite sure where they where they. Took uh-huh. her. might just have been a public place down at the Harbour Master's Office or something like that.
0: So when does the women's prison get uh, built?
1: Well, there isn't really... I mean, what they 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 do is that the magistrate's house turns into the debtor's prison because there has to be a sort of separate area to keep debtors because debtors are, are civil mm. um, prisoners they're not criminal prisoners and they occupy a little bit of that. The regulations which you know, are modelled on those of Britain very very firmly state that women do um, must not be within the confines of the, the male prison insofar as the, you know, any male prisoner could see a, a female. So they're always kept very separate. They are in the debtor's prison to start with. And then only in with the, re, the, the building of what we know of as Victoria Jail now in the 1860s that they got their own special space.
0: And when we look at, um, you know, the prison that uh, is then, as you say, the... the... Um, as part of the Victoria Jail, so what now is uh, Tycoon, uh or part of Taichung, the Central Police Station Complex, and uh, in, up there in Hollywood Road, and uh, with the female prison, they, uh, you know, I was reading that, um, of course, they have to watch that, you know, people try and stay healthy, because um, it's actually if you've got people obviously living together, then there's a chance for um, you know, disease. It's also a chance for for lice. Um, you've got some <laughs> some detail on, you know, whether they're going to have their hair cut. But they then find that Chinese women in this particular case um, actually, uh, uh, for the most part, uh, you know, tend to look after their personal hygiene very well. I
1: have to say, you know, in in the early period, I mean, through to eighteen seventies or so, um, there's any if if there is sort of eight women in the jail at any one time, that would be a busy day. Uh, there are not a lot of women kept. We have to go through to the 1900s before we see like a dozen of women a day living there. In, in They had two association cells, which are probably 20 foot by 15 foot or something like that, and then a number of small individual cells a couple of punishment cells and then a couple a uh, few individual cells so there was for in the early period there was enough room to keep disease at the bay and there's very few very few reports about any disease within the women's prison for example when when the plague is ravaging hong kong there are no reports really of the plague happening within the prison the whole prison you know, the men's prison as well
0: that's interesting, so. isn't it? Because you'd have thought, you know, obviously yes. when we had bubonic plague here in 1894, that that would be, you know, when you've got um, people, as I say, living in close confines, that that um, that would be a classic sort of Petri dish for that.
1: Mm. Yeah, they were, you know, the, the Victorian cleanliness is next to godliness. They, they were very <laughs> keen on everything being swept and cleaned and white-lined all the time. Yes. Um, so that did actually act as a suppressant to disease and the colonial surgeon and medical officer of the prison were were powerful people in their own rights within
0: the administration of the jail it's also interesting that uh, in terms of prison population it's it's you know if if you go to at that time britain for example had way more, a way higher statistically out of the population or percentage wise was was the the women's prison population was far higher than it is here
1: yeah far higher. So that in the mid-19th century, English prisons, uh, about 25% of the prison population were female. Scottish prisons, it rises to almost 40%, whereas in Hong Kong, it's 5%, 7%, Mm -hmm. that sort of proportion. A lot of that is to do with the, the fact that in the UK and probably the USA as well, the crimes the women were being brought in for were basically being drunk and disorderly, the women who are in in jail are prostitutes or women really living on the margins who take to the grog, take to the the cheap liquor, uh, just to make life a little bit more bearable. And then they get pretty rowdy and then they're hauled in up in front of the beak again and doing time
0: yet again so they you know repeat offending in britain at that time was very high i'm talking with patricia o'sullivan the author of women crime and the courts hong kong 1841 to 1941 now patricia that's your second book and uh, followed on from your book on the history or the early history of the hong kong police if you could dis- tell our listeners about that It is the
1: earlier history of the Hong Kong police, but from a particular vantage point in that I had found out almost by accident that my grandfather... A couple of great uncles, a number of their cousins, were all part of the Hong Kong police force between 1864 and 1950. And it was an attempt to find out the stories and find out what took them there and what kept them in Hong Kong. They'd all come from a little town in in Ireland in North County Cork, a small agricultural town with then the population of about 1,000 people. And so there was my my family, and then there was a whole other strand of family from the same town who went out without reference. The two fa- the two family strands didn't have reference to one another. Um, it was not what one brought the other out. They they both coincidentally found themselves in Hong Kong, and established sort of dynasties of, in my case O'Sullivans, and the other case Lysaght Murphys, and a lot of them were in the police force. So. Yeah, I had this whole wealth of stories because I had about 20 people with 20 men and they brought their women out as uh, brides after they'd come back on leave. So there's quite a big community
0: from this little town in Ireland ends up in Hong Kong. So that's where you begin and that's where you find your women for also some of the women for women, crime and the courts. Can we have another criminal, please? <laughs> right, another criminal, I
1: have to say I have to say I didn't I didn't get any criminals from my own family. I mean I was having, You're having on the seen, other side. Done all this work yeah, having done all this work on the Irish, you know, I was sure I was going to find a, a good Irish girl who'd gone a, a bit awry, but no
0: <laughs> In terms of prison sentences, was there a system whereby, you know, a certain crime merited a certain sentence?
1: Yes, uh, I have to remember that in Hong Kong, I mean Hong Kong is such a transient place and that was um, it was always the intention of the Hong Kong government that uh, they, they wouldn't they weren't going to hang on to anybody who wasn't a productive member of society or could support themselves so we don't often see really long sentences people ah. would be banished people would do maybe a maximum five year sentence and then be banished from Hong Kong, so sent you know, putting the boat back to Canton or wherever. In the early period, there are British soldiers who commit serious offences, which don't require death penalty but are long term sentences, who are sent back to the UK for their sentence. Oh, interesting. To, yeah. So they didn't hold on, you know, even in the men's jail, there are not a lot of men under sentence of more than five years.
0: The very serious ones, the murders, would have been hung. Oh, yeah, yeah. that's another way of clearing the prison population, isn't it? it is. It's absolutely. It very cash. Yes, yeah. no, I hadn't thought of that. Yes, of course, it's that era. I mean of course, here I mean the death penalty doesn't um go from the statute books till nineteen ninety one but I think our last death penalty is nineteen sixty six so but um yes back in the day um it would have been hanging probably in that yeah. where we've got taekiko now in the courtyard there do you think or was it done done somewhere in a room
1: the, no it was um in the compound in front of the magistracy right in the nineteenth century it then became sort of private and it was sometimes within a, a courtyard of the at the back of the magistracy
0: so in the early days could you attend a good hanging yes and people did even later
1: when hangings were in private the press would be invited in quite often
0: oh no i don't think i'd want to be yeah. on that,
1: no. <laughs> on that <laughs> not, no. you're, you're not going to volunteer for that one <laughs> yes. but but there were only two women in the whole period i've only come across two women who were hung one is uh, for the, the murder of the, the her husband in Aberdeen Harbour in 1923, and then the last one, Kwan, was executed in 1940 for the murder of her husband's concubine and possibly the murder of the concubine's son and the husband's mother. Goodness. So,
0: yeah. But other than murder, I mean, obviously murder are the ones that that gain the headlines, but, you know, women that that you found in your book and that's Women, Crime in the Courts, Hong Kong 1841 to 1941 often the cases were to involving prostitution, kidnapping and child abduction.
1: Yes, kidnapping they involve prostitution in so much as women kidnap other women and children to sell those people into prostitution and there was a very lucrative market in California, straight Settlements, Singapore and elsewhere as well as in Hong Kong and Canton, for women so-sold and children so-sold,
0: yes. And so in California, was that going to Chinese populations there? Yes. Yeah, yes. so that would be the gold rush, the, the railway? Yes, indeed, yeah. So
1: this was, for the women who were committing these crimes, they didn't regard it as a crime, it was a normal transaction. It was a, a rare way of making a relatively substantial amount of money. Although most such abductions and kidnappings went through a a series of intermediaries, so one imagines that every person was taking their cut, and since quite a lot of the intermediaries were men, they probably took the greater cut, but there we go. Mm. (laughs) But it's often the women at the start who are selling? It's often the women who do the keeping of of the women before they are exported, It's the time when, especially in the 19th century, very early part of the 20th century, there is an export industry of what is called coolie labor to parts, particularly parts of South America. So men theoretically can choose to contract themselves for a certain number of years, five or ten years, to go and work in the the plantations, sugar sugar farms, and elsewhere, in in other countries, and then come back to their families. But a lot of that exportation of these men comes through Hong Kong, who try and Hong Kong course tries very very much to make sure that the ships that they're on are suitable, seaworthy, and the men have they're well provisioned, so the men will be fed properly, and the men aren't coerced. But inevitably, there was a lot of abuse of this. Now, at the same time, there are people sort of thinking, "Okay, we need to to export women to provide sexual services for these men. And so that's another opening for the the female criminally minded who doesn't mind taking advantage of, of others.
0: Now there was a, It was not only the you know exporting women for prostitution. I mean literally trafficking them. There was also this ambiguous area in the, in the sense of girls who would also come into indentured labour with families. Uh, probably ended up uh, as prostitutes some of the time or sort of brothel slaves. But it was also in some cases it was a case of done with the intention of in- providing. A better life for that child probably food security or they were just simply moved to a another family or you know as part of the extended family but in the cases where it wasn't so good of course it was actually becoming a a situation where these girls were sold and in fact the the hospital here you you also talk about in your book and and what sort of a role they play in that and also the Poland cook yeah very much the sort of noble idea
1: of daughter adoption was to give a girl from a poor family a better life. But that involved her moving from a poor family to a less poor family. And of course, it gets skewed when the the people who are doing, the woman who is doing the adoption, who's taking on the child, herself can hardly support herself. And so we see girls going into very very nasty situations where a chinese daughter would be expected to work in the home and you know do a complete full day's housework but these little girls are often very ill-treated as well as being expected to do all their
0: work yes was just a slave then
1: yes and they had no way of Escaping, And that is where the Registrar-General at the earlier times and then the Secretariat for Chinese Affairs came in because they had the officials that could help rescue the girls who were being abused, and they, they were sent then to the Poland Cook who would try to either send them back to their homes or to get them properly adopted or, in the case of older girls, get, find suitable husbands for them.
0: All right, okay. Yeah, I'm not sure whether that's a solution. <laughs> yeah, different world, isn't it? <laughs> oh yeah, just slightly. Uh, but it, I think that really does, I mean, joking apart, I think you know, the fact in women crime and the courts you really do show just what the women's lot is and often it's a case of, you know, whether it's uh, you know, often it, that's the case of the Chinese women but not exclusively. You've got European women <laughs> oh. who um, sometimes yeah. have arrived with a husband and have either been abandoned or otherwise the husband's died and suddenly their lives are turned upside down. There's no income and they just have to look to themselves to earn and often that can result in turning to crime whether that's prostitution or something else or stealing or whatever i mean within your book also i mean there is that element of the despair the poverty but actually within crime as well some of them are a little bit lighter uh in the sense that you also have cases of fraud or also um you know what was it fake coins used to buy sweets
1: Oh, yeah, yes. In in the beginning of um, the 20th century, when the situation in, in mainland China was, was very unsettled, there was a lot of forging of both notes and coins, and uh, women were were frequently used as carriers for these, and they had to get rid of them. And, yeah, so I do have sort of, all the nice stories about women trying to, Get rid of them in the sweetie shop. Um, (laughs) Very, very, very sort of poorly
0: forged. Ten cent coins, five cent coins, things like this. Very low value money. I think one of the elements of the the importance of of highlighting this social history is, um, you know, just showing not only, you know, the vulnerability of women sometimes in terms of that life could be precarious if their sort of funding went or the, the fact that they were, you know, within the protection of the families and if that went wrong. So from that side of things, or particularly if they had to make their own way, in the world but what i was astonished by in the book and not in a good way was the high mortality rate of of infants i mean obviously if you go back to the 19th century or turn of the 20th century then in in fairly developed places there was still plenty of infant mortality but here in hong kong it was staggering Uh, amongst the chinese population it was 74 percent of births where the baby died
1: yeah first of all figures for, for population in hong kong are really quite difficult because there was a lot of people in the Chinese community didn't register a child at birth and certainly didn't register girls' births or didn't register them within the, the time frame that the British government said you had to do. I think, it's, I think you have a month to register a birth. So sometimes we get strange, strange statistics where it appears that more children have died within the first year of um, life than were actually born so there has to be a correction of statistics, yeah. but nevertheless, the mortality was vast, and you, you can say it was about seven times worse than that in the non Chinese population in this period, whether it's whether you're in the u s a or u k or hong kong there's a, about a ten percent mortality rate in children within the first year of life in the European population but it's so high in the Chinese population and a lot of this is to do with the the way that after birth there was a sense that the, the umbilical cord had to be sealed and the normal method of sealing it was with a mixture of dirt and dung. Why? Well I don't know but this was the preparation used to seal the cord so it stopped bleeding. And what would happen to the but baby? What happened to the baby was that it basically got lockjaw from this, and it's called trismus, and the baby stops being able to suck, and within a few days it dies. I mean, I, I had this. There's an excellent book, Medical History of Hong Kong, 1842 to 1941, by Moira Chang Young, which is full of astonishing information that i had not the faintest idea of so i i
0: owe what i'm saying now entirely to her work so they basically the the child dies as you say of lockjaw so that lockjaw jaw is also known as christmas christmas and um so were any midwives had up for this or, or was this just regarded well, as a tradition there was no no possibility of having a any criminal charge of
1: this because this was normal standard practice and it wasn't even midwives i mean the mother the grandmother or the child would do it for her daughter you know part of na- the normal procedure there are a, f- a few cases of a midwife being charged with manslaughter voluntary or involuntary and it's where they have used implements within a birth which they have no business using. There is registration, later registration of midwives, but there's a lot of midwives who, who are practicing without registration and who weren't permitted, for example, to do a forceps delivery. Mm. That would be, it would be a doctor who would have to be in attendance to do a forceps delivery. So, yeah, I've certainly got a couple of them who were prosecuted, but none of the prosecutions came, came to fruition, shall we say, because the evidence was not sufficiently strong.
0: Uh, but I would imagine that sometimes also when it was a girl baby, were there cases of infanticide then? Uh, sort of moving away slightly from from the the midwifery tradition.
1: I think it's a more a matter of uh, just being left out, the abandoned babies. I mean, even my my grandfather, who was in Hong Kong from 1896 to 1921, he had he often picked up a, a baby, you know, just lying around on the, on the slopes of Hong Kong. Would take this little mite, and it was often a girl, to to the to the nuns, to the sisters at one of the convents, who made a a speciality, as it were, of trying to look after these children. But most of them would die.
0: Author Patricia O'Sullivan there, highlighting the social history of women here in her latest book, Women, Crime and the Courts, Hong Kong, 1841 to 1941, published by Blacksmith Books. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.